language is never handed down to us from the sky, from some deity, nor is it handed down to us from governments. Changes in the pronunciation, changes in the grammar will happen willy-nilly, and 10,000 videos on YouTube are not going to stop it. There isn't just one way to speak English. As a language that's spoken around the world, it's like a chameleon, changing and adapting to fit in with its environment. Not only do you see entirely distinct varieties in many countries like Ugandan English or South African English, but you also see English words being mixed with other tongues. So how do these new versions of English come about and what makes them unique? Welcome to The Language Podcast. I'm Richard Simcott. In this podcast, we explore the ins and outs of what makes us uniquely human, language. This first season is all about the evolution of English. Very few people know as much about this topic as Michael McCarthy, Emeritus Professor of Applied Linguistics at the University of Nottingham in the UK. He's been studying the evolution of English since the 1980s and has written more than 50 books on the language. His latest is McCarthy's Field Guide to Grammar, Natural English Usage and Style, published by Chambers. I started by asking Mike how well English travels and whether we need to adapt it. Well, it travels very well, like um, a good wine, I think. And the question, do we need to adapt it? I don't mm-hmm. think we uh, need to because it is a self-adapted organism. It adapts itself. That's built into its very nature. It cannot stand still. It adapts itself according to its users and who those users are. And of course, over recent years, we've seen the profile of the users of English changing greatly from a minority of the world population that studied English as a foreign language to a global society where English is the lingua franca in so many domains of life, business, academic life, science, technology, etc. So it adapts itself, I think is the simplest answer. It adopts new vocabulary. Its grammar changes to reflect the uh, social context of its users. And the language changes in terms of what happens when languages contact one another, when cultures are in contact. It's a natural process rather than something that we need to do. And English does travel well. It seems to have um, got right round the world and uh, hardly a corner of the world where you won't find it, either on public display in terms of street signs and, and, of course, in the massive use of the internet and online culture, social media, etc. So, I mean, this is kind of, I guess, you know, the birth sometimes of some new ways of using English around the world as well, because English, as we say English, really maybe it should be English is. Yes, and that term has entered the, certainly entered the academic consciousness, so it's perfectly normal now in academic circles to talk about world Englishes and the study of The way English has adapted itself and evolved around the world is now a massive subdiscipline in itself. And the plural English is, though my word processor doesn't like it, the spell checker still (laughs) doesn't like it and wants me always to put it back into the singular. The plural English is, I think, captures that 
very plurality of English around the world, that we no longer sort of look to any individual variety to say that is the benchmark. When I started as a language teacher, there were just really two benchmarks of English in the world, British English and perhaps North American English. Now each variety of English can be its own benchmark, whether that is a benchmark applied in education or purely in terms of social and public life. So public life could mean things like broadcasting. It could also mean things like advertisements and so on, which no longer need to immediately question, do we use British or American English, but can naturally simply adopt the conventions of their own variety of English. And that's a very good reason why we do talk about Englishes in the plural. And of course, we should have always been doing that anyway. The very fact that we got stuck in this rut of thinking there was something called English that covered all this multitude of dialects, whether it be in the islands of Britain and Ireland or North America or Australia or South Africa or the Caribbean or wherever, it's probably always been a bit of a mistake to use this blanket term English. It was just a convenience. No, I mean, I, I agree with you. And I see, you know, the way the language has evolved into different what some people refer to as pidgins or creoles and things like that around the world. The interesting thing is as well, is that the sort of, I'm going to use the term original <laughs> to refer to the English as spoken in our islands. That variant that went out around the world has always incorporated foreign terms. Why and how on earth does that even happen? The why it happens is that language is shameless in the way that it borrows from other, other languages. Every language does this. I mean, why would we need to invent new words if they are on hand? The example that I could give would be when the Romans colonized England, one of the things they did was to build viaducts. Well, the ancient Britons had never seen a viaduct. So when they observed this magnificent architectural structure, what could be simpler than to take the Roman word for it and adapt it slightly and call it a viaduct? And all around the world, we see examples of this. We see languages simply borrowing from one another. The French language has borrowed extensively from English, as has Swedish. Right now, Scandinavian television series are very popular from Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. And anyone watching them in the original language cannot fail to be struck by the number of English words that are included, mm -hmm. very often taboo words. And this works both ways. The Anglo-Saxon peoples borrowed a lot from the Christian vocabulary because that was the era in which Christianity entered uh, the islands of Britain and Ireland. So we get words like candle. A minster, meaning a, a monastery, which came in thanks to Christianity. And then, of course, when the Vikings and the Normans came in, yet more vocabulary was simply borrowed from those languages. And the, you had this interesting situation then that the linguist David Crystal points out, and that is that you actually end up very often having two vocabularies operating side by side. You have one which is an Old English Anglo-Saxon vocabulary, 
and the other which is a, a Nordic and Norse borrowing. So you'll have words like ill, which comes from Old English, and sick, which comes from Old Norse. And there are a number of examples like this. So Old English had the word hide, and Old Norse had the word skin. So we still talk about animal hide and animal skins and so on. So that's why, partly why this happens, because peoples have contact, they invade and colonize, and they bring with them their language, their terms, and very often it's very simple, just a matter of borrowing them. How it happens is obviously a process that occurs over time, and it may begin with a straightforward borrowing, very often in particular social circles. So when the Normans invaded England, a lot of legal vocabulary came in, the vocabulary of the law that the Normans brought with them. And so obviously the, the, the borrowings into English would have been originally the property of the legal class, the lawyers. And then, of course, things spread out from their original centers of, of operation. In the case of English um, adopting the names of foreign foods, we can probably trace this back to the influx of populations, perhaps after the Second World War, quite a lot of Italian people settled in Britain. Uh, then, of course, Brits began to travel more to places like Spain and the Mediterranean, holiday destinations. And so you get these food words coming in, which might have first been seen only on restaurant menus and then slowly spread out so that they enter people's domestic environments and become words that they use in their own homes. But mm -hmm. these processes will happen over time and they're perfectly natural and perfectly normal. Well, I've seen that myself with English. I remember seeing the word quinoa and I'd never seen it living in the UK and I first saw it in another language and I thought it was quinoa. Uh -huh. yes. <laughs> so actually learning to pronounce it in my own language was quite quite the experience. Yes, and there are other very common ones too that a lot of people would say pizza rather than pizza. And one that I've noticed is the Italian coffee with milk, which I call a latte. If I go and order one at a coffee shop, I will almost certainly hear back from the assistant, okay, so that's two lattes. There's this lengthening of the vowel to correspond to the English notion that short vowels are signs of um, uh, <laughs> lack of class and elegance in language. <laughs> so I was born and bred in the city of Cardiff, where I have Cardiff, whereas anyone who tries to be posh coming from Cardiff insists on saying Cardiff. And I think the same process has happened with the, with the coffee in the case of latte. And with, with all these borrowings into English and into the Englishes, where does English end and where do pigeons and creoles begin? Well, I think the answer to that is that English itself is a pigeon. And the idea that these other varieties of English are some sort of impoverished version of what we speak in England, I think is, is completely uh, mistaken. That if you think of present day English, it is a simplified version of what existed um, over a thousand years ago. 
various endings, inflections have just disappeared. We have a very, very simple verb system whereby we don't have complex endings with very few exceptions, one being the third person S on verbs such as takes and arrives. And my feeling is that with the growing um, incoming populations of uh, people who, for whom English was not their first language, this may have an effect even further. Because as an English language teacher, I know that one of the things that most learners of English as a second language do is to drop that third person S, that third person present tense singular S at the end of a verb. And slowly but surely, this could become the norm so that we might end up just like the Swedish language with one ending to cover all persons in the present tense and in the past tense. So this process of pigeonization is something that naturally happens in all the varieties of English and British English or American English, these uh, so-called benchmark varieties as we used to think of them, are not immune to that process. We are all pigeons at heart. You've mentioned, you know, the way English changes and the kind of the things that we've seen and the things even that you maybe can predict or imagine about the way English will change. What's been the most kind of radical change to English today? Oh, I think in my lifetime, the biggest change has been changes in levels of formality in almost everything. Uh, when I was uh, a youngster, it would have been a crime for somebody on the radio interviewing, I don't know, an expert or a politician or a public figure, it would have been a crime not to address them as Mr. or Miss or Mrs. or Lord or Lady. Nowadays, it's perfectly normal, for example, on the BBC, for an interviewer to address any interviewee other than perhaps the royal family and the prime minister <laughs> by their first name. And this indicates a, a level of, or projects a level of informality. Similarly, I can't remember the last time I had a, a letter or an email from a company which I deal with where they addressed me as dear Mr. McCarthy or dear Professor McCarthy. And now I'm always Michael. Hello. And <laughs> I react to this by thinking, well, you know, Michael is uh, a name that I associate with friends, family, and close colleagues. And here's this complete stranger who's sending me an email, offering me some sort of service or reminding me that some sort of payment is due and address me as, hello, Michael. Um, and similarly, the valedictory, the ending of an email or a, a letter will now be likely to be something like all the best or best. Similarly, at the beginning of communications, the number of people who hope I am well is, is astonishing to think that they all care. <laughs> there are these thousands of people sitting out there in offices who are hoping that their email finds me well. Now, that, that may actually be due to the fact that when the pandemic burst upon us, we did start to worry about whether everybody was feeling well. <laughs> Nonetheless, I still find it quite astonishing. So 
that general level of informality, it affects the way we address one another. It also affects accent. And it's not a bad thing that national institutions such as the BBC are now far more tolerant of regional accents and accents associated with particular social or cultural groups acting as news announcers or anchors and linkages between programs. This I welcome, being someone from South Wales who found when he went to university that to communicate successfully, I had to change my accent to a more standard, educated version of English. So I welcome that informality in terms of um, the acceptance of accents. And if you like, the greater acceptance of what we would have in the past called street English, the English of pop culture and hip-hop and so on. It's becoming much more standard. The use of taboo words in films and television, words which would have been absolute taboo when I was a youngster are now perfectly normal and can be heard in television and radio and films and online on a daily basis. So there has been this general move towards the idea that uh, formality and distance are not a good thing and that we should be more intimate and informal with one another. I make no great value judgment about it, but it, it is simply a fact. One linguist has referred to it as the conversationalization of discourse, a horrible word and one that needs rehearsing about 20 times before you get it right. <laughs> but you can see where it, um, where it comes from and where it's going, that more and more our public discourses are resembling conversation rather than formal speech. And this is very noticeable, for example, in university lectures. There's research that shows that typical university lecturers have become more conversational in their lecturing style. Hello, listener. I hope this short break finds you well. Let me tell you about Teach Yourself, the sponsor of today's episode. Whether you're learning for cultural curiosity, travel, business, school, love, or friendship, Teach Yourself puts you in charge of your language learning journey. Listeners of the Language Podcast receive a special 30% discount on Teach Yourself language ebooks. Just follow the link in the show notes with expert authors, 85 years of publishing experience, and more than 70 languages and counting. You can start learning today with Teach Yourself. Now, I have to say, I felt very seen when Mike talked about people wishing him well at the start of every email. Guilty. Have you noticed any other ways in which English is changing? Or other examples of how we're becoming less formal? Share any new practices you've noticed in the comments for this episode on the Language Podcast YouTube channel. Right, back to it. And the big question at the heart of all of this is... Why do so many different Englishes exist, some even within the same country? Well, that's a good question, because in the same country, for me, would mean Britain. And yes, different Englishes exist here. So, for example, when the Romans arrived, they found people speaking Celtic languages, Britonic languages, and... These overlays 
of historical influences, the Romans, later the Saxons, the Normans, the, the Danes, the, the Vikings, these overlays never completely wipe out what is already there. So there are very good historical reasons why differences remain. We can see to this day in the English of Wales and Scotland and Ireland and perhaps Cornwall too, influences of these earlier historical stages and the uh, ancient tongues. So that's one reason, historical reasons. But staying with my own native country, Wales, there are also very good geographical reasons. Wales was for a very long time and still is in some respects an isolated part of Britain. And to this day, it's quite difficult to get from north to south in Wales. It's much easier to go from west to east or east to west. To go from north to south, you have to more or less venture into England to find a good long main road. This has had the result that even within Wales, there are two distinct varieties of Welsh, the North Welsh and the South Welsh of the, the Celtic Welsh language. So that's a purely geographical reason. Another reason then looking beyond these islands would be contact with people who speak completely different tongues. So I lived for a couple of years in Malaysia and was very conscious that Malaysian has its own variety of English, which one can trace to influences from the Chinese populations that live there, the Indian people from the Indian subcontinent who live there and speak Indian languages, which have created this kind of melting pot that we now know as Malaysian English. And you can apply those criteria in many places around the world where contact and contact could mean trade, it could mean colonization, it could mean intermarriage, it could mean all sorts of things. When human beings are in close contact, they accommodate to one another's languages, they incorporate from one another's languages. And this, again, is one of those perfectly normal processes. It's interesting you mentioned Malaysia and Malaysian English. You hear also about Manglish and then in Singapore, Singlish, as well as Singaporean English and Malaysian English. Hmm. These all the same kinds of things? Are the differences even to be noted amongst the, the different terminologies? Well, I think uses of terms like Singlish, Singapore English, are ways of expressing an identity, essentially. It's, it's a claim to an identity that what is being spoken is English, recognizably English in terms of vocabulary and grammar and so on, but which has a particular identity that belongs to the people of Singapore. So the use of the term Singlish for me would be a rather positive term. However, I suspect that in some circles it probably has slightly negative connotations, that it's some sort of um, impoverished form of English. I think that would be a great mistake. If we are to use terms like Singlish and Manglish, then we need to recognize them as labels for an identity, a social, cultural, and historical identity within a particular dialect group of English. And the words that we come into contact with from other cultures in English, these sometimes are ideas that have entered into the language as well. And 
the speaker's psyche. I mean, how far do these ideas enter into English and into the psyche of the people who speak it? Yes, that's a, that's another fascinating question. So we're not just talking about borrowing words. We're talking here about borrowing concepts and making those concepts part of our own identity and life. And the, the one that strikes me is the Swedish word ombudsman, which um, when I lived in Sweden in the 1970s was a purebred Swedish word representing a particular civil servant office whereby ordinary citizens could take claims and complaints against uh, the governments and various authorities. So that word entered British English around that time and shortly afterwards. And now, 30, 50 years on, very few people would probably even have a clue that it came from Swedish. But even more so, people now accept that there is this institutional inbuilt voice in British society called the ombudsman. And we have ombudsmen for absolutely everything. And the idea that this is some sort of foreign notion, that the role of the ombudsman is something foreign, I think has long since disappeared. The ombudsman is now as much a part of British life as fish and chips and warm beer. Similarly, when we were talking earlier about the general informality of language reflecting an informality of society, I'm struck by how often I hear the Irish Gaelic word crack, C-R-A-I-C, the crack, meaning riotous enjoyment, which often takes place in pubs and so on. This has become part of the vocabulary, certainly of the younger generation of British, whereby they sort of stiff up a lip, enjoy yourself, but whatever you do, don't show it, is probably becoming a thing of the past. And we wear our hearts on our sleeves more and more. And I'm never surprised now where I hear, when I hear people talking about having great crack. And, of course, the classic example is the notion that certain dishes, certain culinary dishes, are foreign, I think has long ago disappeared too. So various types of Indian curry, things like chicken tikka and chicken masala, are no longer thought of as highly exotic dishes. They're sort of perfectly normal. They become part of the British psyche in terms of what we eat. So yes, language comes in and ideas are imported along with them. And if those ideas fit into the culture in which they arrive, then the words, the names that come with them are very quickly absorbed too, so that you have this direct relationship between word and meaning, which has cut off that umbilical cord that once related it to some foreign or exotic language and culture it, you know the words and the examples that you've just given obviously when you ask people where they're from they possibly would know i mean ombudsman maybe not but things like crack and maybe types of curry people might be able to point to an area of the world at least where they think it's from and have a fair yeah. idea but there must be other words also that have come into the language that are totally unrecognizable now for the people who use them and mm not only for the people whose languages they came from, but also to us. Do you know any examples of, of words like that that we don't really know? I don't know how many people would know the Indian subcontinental 
origin of bungalow. Bungalows are so universally part of the English-British built landscape that very few people would probably think of, of them as, as foreign words or veranda, words like that, patio. They might have some vague notion that a word like patio probably comes from the southern Mediterranean somewhere, but whether it was French or Italian or Spanish or Portuguese, they probably wouldn't have much clue. So these things become, I think, divorced from their original context and just become any other old English words, as simple as that. Yeah, some of them really do stand out as they, they just become English. I think that's the interesting thing that you say, they really become English words. And to take that a little bit further, are there any words that have really radically changed their meaning as well as, you know, having an unrecognizable origin? Well, um, I suppose you could look at the German word blitz, which I believe, I don't know German, but I believe means lightning. Blitz now is regularly used as a noun meaning just to have an intensive period of work. We better have a blitz on that, or I've had a blitz on the index for my book, meaning I spent a couple of intensive hours working on it. So that would be a good example where the original meaning is not used at all, as far as I can tell, in modern English. Another word that's often quoted is, is over the historical period is, is the word nice, which has gone through so many changes in meaning. You know, it began way back many, many uh, centuries ago, having a meaning of not knowing something from the Latin nescio, meaning not to know. Then it moves through various meanings over the, the centuries. It's connected with the modern nethio in Spanish, meaning foolish. At one point, it meant wicked people. Then at another point in its history, it meant precise or accurate. And now it just means something nice or pleasant. And we've forgotten all those meanings it went through over the years. Another classic would be advertisement, which in its uh, origins, what, six, seven hundred years ago, meant a warning. It meant something, a serious warning. Now, I think for most people, it can only mean one thing, an encouragement to buy something, to buy a product or a service. So, yes, words can change so radically that they lose all contact with their, either their historical origins or their foreign origins when they were imported. We talked, obviously, about these different words and coming in and how they've just started to become English. But when can we really pinpoint or can we even really pinpoint when a loan word simply becomes English? I think you, you have to take several factors into account. One would be pronunciation. So when the word has lost its original pronunciation to the extent that its current pronunciation represents English vowels or consonants rather than the original ones, that's a sure sign. An example of that would be the name of the country, Argentina. You know, it would be almost pretentious to say Argentina, where you would have um, both a different realization of the R, the G, and the T, and well, not to mention the vowels. So pronunciation is obviously one clue. Grammar would be another clue, whether the word has hopped from one 
one word class to another, if you like, or has lost its original grammatical inflection. So again, it would be rather pretentious if you were in a choir to talk about tenore uh, using the original Italian inflection. So its grammar has become simplified to the English tenor. The plural then becomes tenors with an S and uh, alto becomes altos with an S, which wouldn't be in Italian. So pronunciation and grammar are clues that the word has evolved and been incorporated into the phonological and grammatical systems of the English language. And then, of course, there are those other processes like shifts in meaning and incorporation into the culture and consciousness. So it's very difficult to pinpoint any particular point in history where a word fulfills all those criteria. You know, the criteria will be fulfilled at various points along its trajectory to becoming a fully-fledged English word. The question of pronunciation and how we pronounce certain words, sounding pretentious is something you've mentioned, (laughs) sounding ridiculous even sometimes, but it is something that comes up time and time again and you see it on videos on YouTube, people saying how things should be pronounced, people even correcting people on how things should be pronounced, especially when they're words of obvious or uh, suspected foreign origin. Is there kind of a rule as to how they should or shouldn't be pronounced as in the original language or should they be anglicized? Well, (laughs) the suggestion that there might be a rule would then immediately raise the question of who or what is the authority that (laughs) lays down the rule. And of course, there are no such authorities. Language is never handed down to us from the sky, from some deity, nor is it handed down to us from governments, despite their attempts to standardize. The nearest we get to rules are what forms are accepted by national curricula and standard versions of the language as delivered in education or in the public media. But we've seen how all those things are constantly shifting and changing. The English you hear on the BBC nowadays is nothing like the English that was on the BBC when I was a a little boy. So the idea that there is some person or persons or body that is in authority that can tell you how to pronounce things is, is simply balderdash. It's nonsense. Things will be pronounced in the ways that people pronounce them and people will influence one another. And this organic phenomenon, this changes in the pronunciation, changes in the grammar, will happen willy-nilly. And uh, 10,000 videos on YouTube are not going to stop it. What's something that you know that always surprises people when you speak on this topic? Well, when I speak on this topic, I usually make reference to corpora that I've been researching, corpora being these large computerized databases of language. And I'm especially interested in the hundreds, thousands of transcripts of spoken conversations that we have stored in our corpora. And what I think always surprises people is when you tell them just how often they use rather vague language, just how often they say, and things like that, and that sort of thing, and or whatever, 
uh, stuff like that. Uh, people will protest that they don't do this. They will actually swear that they never do this. But of course, the evidence is there that there's hardly a conversation that you could find on the database in the corpus that does not have people saying and things like that and whatever. Now, of course, you think, why do they do this? Well, we do this because it would be utterly tiresome and endlessly tedious if you, instead of saying, and things like that, you listed absolutely every item that's included in the phrase and things like that. So, you you know, you meet a friend in the street and they say, oh, you've got a lot of shopping there. What have you been buying? Oh, well, I've just moved into my new flat and I've been buying plates and cups and things like that. Fine, enough. Mm -hmm. I've just moved into my new flat and I've bought four plates, four cups, four saucers, five teaspoons, six coat hangers, you know, seven, <laughs> seven wine glasses, eight, eight cups. By that time, your interlocutor, your listener will have lost the will to live. Um, so little things like that surprise people because mm -hmm. these are things on the edges of our consciousness. They are subliminal. We're not aware that we are using them. And you need the objective evidence of a computerized corpus to say, yes, you do use them. You use them all the time. They're incredibly frequent. And what piece of information do you most enjoy sharing? Oh, well, it's very similar. I, I always enjoy showing people that in five million words of transcribed conversation, people say, you know, K-N-O-W, you know, 12,000 times. And that once again, this always makes people sit up again. 12,000 times. And again, you will have people who say, I never say that. You'll even have people standing up and saying, you know, I would never say that. Um, <laughs> so that's the one I love sharing most of all. The fact that, you know, is the single most frequent combination of two words in spoken English. There are no other two words that come together anything like as frequently as you and no. You know, I think you might be right. <laughs> what do you think is one key thing that everyone should know about what we've discussed? Well, I think, I hope at least, that what emerges from this conversation is just how organic language is, how it is a living, organic phenomenon that we create. It's not created by the lawgivers or the experts. We create it by interacting with one another. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, your thoughts. Well, and thank you for thank you for giving me the opportunity to share them. I consider this to be a great privilege, great opportunity. Thank you, Richard. Me too. I've learnt a lot. <laughs> so thank you very, very much. Thanks for listening to the Language Podcast. I'm Richard Simcott. I'd love to know if you've noticed any ways English is changing, becoming less formal, or any other interesting characteristics of your version of English. Share your thoughts with me in the comments. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a like and hit that subscribe button. If you enjoyed listening to Mike, then you'll enjoy his book, McCarthy's Field Guide to Grammar, Natural English Usage and Style. Based on corpus data, 50 years of teaching and 40 years of field notes picked from books, media and shamelessly eavesdropping on people's conversations in public spaces, Mike uses witty and entertaining examples to explain the conventional rules of grammar. 
Coming up in the next episode, we'll be getting precise with prepositions and cautioned on commas as we talk grammar with Ellen Joven, creator of The Grammar Table. Oh, and you may have noticed early on in this episode, Mike mentioned a legendary name in the field of linguistics, David Crystal. Well, we'll be hearing from him in the finale of this series. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.